tonight, please. Hebrews chapter 1. Um, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, yes. This is Doing and Living Theology, DLT abbreviated, the ninth installment, and it's called God Has Spoken in a Son, S-O-N. So a few moments, silent preparation. Father, we're grateful for this opportunity that we have to look into the perfect law of liberty, which is your word, for therein we see the reflected glory through the scripture of the light that shines from the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, light that is the light of the knowledge of your glory, Father. We thank you that we have that opportunity. It is the most important thing, the most significant thing, the most indispensable activity that we have in this life, to be transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to the next by the spirit wherein and in whose presence there is liberty. May we experience that liberty tonight in fuller measure than we have before and open our eyes that we may come to understand you And to know you, for that's truly worth boasting about. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews 1 says, and this is my translation, God, having of old spoken to the fathers by the prophets in various fragmentary ways, at the end of these days has spoken to us fully, in a son, simply says in a son. We aren't given many hints. At the outset then of the epistle to the Hebrews, we have God speaking. First, of old, it says, literally. He speaks in fragmentary ways by the prophets to the fathers, and that's simply the ancestors of the addressees of this letter. In contrast to this, God has spoken most recently, we could say fully, not in a fragmentary way, but fully in a son in whom all those fragmentary messages are fulfilled. Our primary focus for now is that God spoke and has now spoken in a son. The emphasis on the speaking of God is complementary with the beginning of John's gospel, which we looked at recently, where what was spoken both in eternity and in time is identified. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, was always God, eternally existed as God. Then it says, all things were made by or through him. And without the word, nothing was made that was made in John 1, 3. 
So the emphasis in Hebrews is on God speaking. And the emphasis in the fourth gospel is the word that was spoken. Here we're trafficking then in what we have called and identified as the psychological analogy in which the eternal generation of the only begotten son of God is the same as the eternal speaking of the word by God. Albeit under a different trope or manner of speaking. The incarnation of the eternal word is the same as the God speaking in a son in history. I'll say that again. The emphasis on Hebrews and John is complementary. The incarnation of the eternal word, John 1.14, is the same as God speaking in a son in history. As the word was eternally spoken in eternity, in the eternal, internal, divine procession of the Son. So God spoke in his Son in history through the incarnation of his Son, which continued in the days of his flesh, his meritorious obedience, his death on the cross as a once and final sin offering for all of humanity, in all of its times, his resurrection and exaltation to the right side of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.3, where he ever lives, Hebrews 7.25, to make intercession for us. Now, when a word is spoken by a man, the word proceeds from him, but the word remains in him even as he remains in his word. This is actually borne out in John, by analogy, when Jesus says, believe me, that I, he's the word now, the eternal word, believe me that I, the word, am in the Father. And the Father is in me, the word. The word eternally spoken by the Father remains in the Father even as it proceeds from the Father. Believe me, Jesus said, that I, the Word, am in my Father, even though I came from my Father. More importantly, even for us, is what he also said in John fourteen twenty: When that day comes, you will know that I, the Word, am in my Father, you are in me, the Word, and I, the Word, am in you. John fourteen twenty. Jesus is the Word. He is in the Father, who we could say, by analogy, eternally spoke the Word. And the Father is in Jesus, who is the word. Now, if I speak a word of promise to you, this is to illustrate, and I wasn't going to do illustration. I wasn't going to have mercy on you tonight. 
It's going to be very theological. But if I were to speak a word of promise to you, then that word of promise would proceed from me, but it would remain in me with the responsibility to fulfill that promise. And in that sense, I would remain in that promise. And in one sense, Jesus Christ is the eternal word spoken of the Father of promise, of a promise of all being in him, all creation being summed up in him. For all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. So, this class has been designed to take us beyond where we were before so that we can comprehend things that we almost comprehend already with more clarity. So it's an exercise for us. We do not yet fully know this, that we are in him and that he is in us. But Paul announces in Colossians the following. You died and your life is hid with Christ in God. With Christ in God. What is hidden will inevitably be manifest. Jesus said all that is hidden will be made known. And we used to think of that, at least I did, in terms of uh-oh. There's nothing hidden that will not be brought into the light. But what is the hidden that's going to be brought into the light is our life hidden with Christ in God. That will be manifest. For the next verse says, And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. That which is hidden, but just as real, will be manifested. In Colossians 3, 4. Now the eternal begetting of the Son by the Father says nothing of the spirit and perhaps you've noted the almost seeming dismissal of the Holy Spirit in our early treatment of the triune God and so it may therefore be assumed that the spirit was not involved in the eternal begetting of the son by the father But when we think of the eternal speaking of the word by the Father, we assume that breath, breath, pneuma, in the Greek, the name for the spirit is breath, spirit, breath. I like the Hebrew term for the Holy Spirit, which is ruach, sounds like breathing, ruach, ha. Kodesh, the Holy Spirit, sounds like breath. It is, in fact, the Holy Spirit is eternal, the eternal breathing of the Father and the Son. He breathes in you and he pours out the love of God in our hearts. There are things that are too wonderful to be explained and can only be demonstrated or at least alluded to by imperfect analogy. And that's what we're doing when we're doing theology. So, when we think of the eternal speaking of the word by the Father as an analogy of the procession of the Son, we assume that breath accompanied the word. As the Spirit was directly involved in the begetting of the Son 
in a woman, the spirit was directly involved. In fact, the word begetting is used in Matthew one twenty. The Holy Spirit was involved in the begetting of the human nature of the divine word in the virgin woman, Mary, in the fullness of time. One who was begotten in eternity or is begotten in eternity was begotten in time. And the Holy Spirit had everything to do with that. So we can as the spirit was directly involved in the begetting of the son in a woman in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, 4, we can imagine, and there's nothing wrong with imagining, the Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh, to have been involved in the eternal speaking of the word. Now here's where you'd immediately say in our limited thinking, well, We didn't think the spirit was around when the father begot the son. (laughs) But we must, tonight I'm going to cure your linear thinking on that subject. And we're going to advance and meld some Eastern theology and with some Western theology. Can we then imagine Ruach HaKodesh to have been involved in the eternal speaking of the word? Is he not the eternal spirit? Hebrews 9.14 identifies him precisely as that. We know from Hebrews 9.14 that the son, having added a human nature to his divine person, offered himself to God, that is the father, through the aeonian spirit. The spirit of the messianic age, we could say, or we could even say the age abiding spirit. But is not the spirit age abiding because he is eternal? Does he not abide over all the ages because he is eternal? When that word aeonion has to do with things or with durations or persons not divine, it does not denote eternity. It can denote a very short time, a lifetime, a year, an age, or an indeterminately long age. But when that word aeonios is used to describe a divine person, eternity is indeed denoted. So the Holy Spirit is an eternal spirit. Now I say these things so that we may be released, let's say liberated, where the Spirit of the Lord is. There's liberty. I say these things so that we may be released or liberated from thinking only in a linear fashion. And by that I mean linear fashion. The father begets the son. And the son and the father breathes the spirit. We can't just think of this as happening in a linear historicity. Thinking only linearly tends to make us imagine that the spirit is somehow inferior or subordinate to the father and the son, and he is not. In the mystery of the Trinity, the spirit always existed as the word always existed, as the father always existed, for in the triune God, existence and essence are one. And so 
here's the practical part where doing theology moves into living theology. We must not let an imperfect analogy rob us of the mystery and of the wonder of the triune God. I'm simply, well, I'm not saying that the psychological analogy has no value. It has great value, and we're going to exploit that value and capitalize on that value in the future. I'm saying quite the contrary. That psychological analogy is extremely important. And it's a great analogy to the two divine processions. But I'm simply suggesting that the two divine processions do not denote priority or superiority of the Father and the Son over the Spirit. You shouldn't think that way. As the Word cannot eternally exist without the speaker of the Word, neither does the speaker of the Word exist without breath. Nor is a word spoken that is not accompanied by breath. I can't sit up here for, stand up here for an hour and hold my breath and speak. No, my words are accompanied by breath. The speaking of the word then, we can imagine, was accompanied by the eternal breath, which is the Holy Spirit. Now, I know this is kind of an innovation on the Western theology of the divine processions. But let's let East meet West and hold on to the wonder of the mystery. The Holy Spirit must not be perceived as being an inferior person of the three divine persons. Or that passive eternal spiration, which we'll be studying, the passively being breathed of the Spirit by the Father and the Son. We must not perceive that passive eternal spiration that is the Holy Spirit is somehow inferior to the active spiration by the Father and the Son. And this is true even as we are not to assume that the passive being begotten eternally of the Son makes the Son eternally subordinate to the Father. Or to the Spirit, for that matter. And here's the practical thing. If we make the error of somehow diminishing the importance of the Holy Spirit in Trinitarian theology, that mistake will no doubt lead to our diminishing of his significance in our life and livingness. I'll say that again because I even had it in kind of an italic here, and it will be in print in italic. If we make the error of somehow diminishing the importance of the Holy Spirit in Trinitarian theology, that mistake will no doubt lead to our diminishing of his significance in our life and livingness. So what about this? God has spoken to us in these most recent days, these eschatological times, these last days. In a son, in a son. Well, this corresponds again to John 1.14, in which the scripture says, and the word became flesh. 
God has spoken in a son who is the son who from eternity the father generates out of his own substance as consubstantial with himself. So this son in whom the father has spoken fully in these eschatological days, these days we could say of fulfillment is none other than the only begotten son who is eternally generated of the father and who is consubstantial, which means simply of the very same eternal essence as the father. Now this is extremely important doctrine because we have at least allegedly people in the highest positions of the so-called church, which isn't the church, saying that Jesus was only a man, that he wasn't God at all, that he was a man, only a man. That was rumored to have been said by a pope recently. I don't think he knows if that's the case, and I don't know if it is the case. I wasn't there. I didn't hear him. And if I did, I don't know Italian or Spanish or whatever he speaks. But this is tragic to make such a statement. The son in whom the father has spoken in these eschatological days is none other than the only begotten son who is eternally generated of the father and who is none other than the only begotten son of the very same eternal essence with the father. He is the very impress, one translation says, of Hebrews 1.3, of the father's substance because he is, new word, consubstantial, but it's in the dictionary now, I think, with the father of the same eternal substance. So it's not as if the father is a stamp and he stamps on the clay that is Christ and there's the image of the father in the impress. No, he is the exact impress of the father because he's the exact essence of the father. So if you've seen me, you haven't seen a reflection of the father. He said, you have seen the father the essential essence of the Father, Jesus said. John 14, 9. That God has spoken definitively in his Son in these last days speaks of a historical speaking, a speaking in time, and not the eternal speaking of the Father of the Word. In these last days or at the end of the days where he spoke only fragmentarily through the prophets. This correlates with the fact that the word eternally spoken of the father with the father and in fact equal to God of the same essence of the father became flesh and tented among us in a tent of flesh, John 1.14. So in these last and most significant days, which continue in our own time, God did not beget his son, whom he begets eternally, nor did he speak the word which he speaks eternally, No, in these last days, God speaks definitively, fully, 
and ultimately in the Son, in whom or whom he eternally generates out of his own substance, and who became flesh through being begotten by the Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh, or Pneuma Hagios, in the virgin woman Mary. Clarifying, Matthew one twenty, the angel sent to Joseph from Yahweh said to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home with you as your wife. For that which was begotten, same word, genao, G-E-N-N-A-O, that which is begotten in her is from the Holy Spirit. Hebrew ruach. Ruach HaChodesh is a word that sounds very like the act of breathing. But the Greek word used here is pneumatos hagiu. So it's fascinating to notice here that the human nature of the divine person who is eternally begotten of the Father, listen to it carefully, the human nature of the divine person who is eternally begotten of the Father, was begotten in a woman by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's hardly forgotten. And so, all this is so that you can think a little bit on your own. We should not always consider the Holy Spirit as the so-called third person of the triune God as if he lacks a certain priority and somehow comes in behind the Father and the Son or after the Father and the Son. There is no before and after. Here the Holy Spirit, in fact, is in a kind of priority, if you want to read it that way, in the begetting of the human nature of the eternal Son. This divine person... Jesus, with a human nature, whose human nature was begotten in a woman, will also be filled and led by the Spirit in his, the days of his flesh and the enacting of obedience. Luke 4.1. Empowered by the Spirit. Luke 4.14. Having been anointed by the Spirit of Yahweh who will be upon him in Luke 4.18, in the first message that he proclaimed following his temptation in the wilderness or testing in the wilderness. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. In fact, most importantly, at the peak of his obedience as a divine person acting humanly, the son will offer himself as the lamb without blemish and without defect to God his father through the Holy Spirit, this age-abiding spirit, this eternal spirit. Hebrews 9.14. This is the spirit who broods over the chaos that invaded creation to bring order and universal Restoration 
in Genesis 1-2. Not necessarily something in the past, but something occurring now, as the Holy Spirit broods over the chaos of the creation, the chaos of history, to ultimately bring order out of it, for this is the second divine mission, the mission of the Spirit, which is directed toward a temporal goal, which all the prophets spoke about. It's called apokatastasios panton, the restoration of all things. So, the Holy Spirit is certainly not presented in some subordinate position to the Son or even of the Father in these acts and operations. You might not know it, but you're undergoing an intellectual conversion here. Not to think so linearly of the Holy Spirit as to perceive him, and he is called a he, as somehow subordinate. To diminish his importance within the triune God is to diminish his importance within your livingness. That wouldn't be good. That wouldn't be living theology. So we must be careful in our consideration of analogies like the psychological analogy, as invaluable as that is to understanding not to assign the Holy Spirit some inferiority to the Father or to the Son. In this psychological analogy, it is true that the Father and the Son eternally breathe the Spirit in the second of two divine processions, and that the Father and the Son send the Spirit in the second of two divine missions. Don't worry, clarity will be coming forth from this. But consider that the breath that a person or persons in unison breathe is essential to the life of that person or persons. That breath is breathed is indispensable to the breath breathed, but the breath breathed is indispensable to the breathers. The Son did not enact obedience to the Father as an independent human agent, but as a divine person acting humanly in the power of the Spirit, and with whom he was anointed and by whom he was continually led and empowered. This is extremely important. Beyond this, What does the scripture say in Romans 8, 14? Those who are led by the spirit are the sons of God. Because the son of God was led by the spirit. These last days, we're actually doing kind of a beginning exegesis of Hebrews here. These last days, with God having spoken in a son, constitute a time of fulfillment and completeness. While that phrase of old, when prophets spoke many times and in many ways to the fathers, was simply a time of movement toward fulfillment and completion in a son, in the only begotten son, begotten in a woman, in the eternal spoken word becoming flesh.
We don't know how, we can't imagine how complete the Christ event is and how finished everything is already to be effectively manifested as finished at the parousia is coming. So, we live not in a time of incompletion, but in a time of completion. In a time when God still speaks in a son. Now, we know from Acts 3.21, and we should always refer to that because it's important for where we're going, as well as where we've been, that the prophets through whose mouth, plural prophets, one mouth, God spoke at various times and by many tropes, T-R-O-P-E-S means many ways, many manners of speaking. They may be speech acts, speech sermons, or they may be divine acts and miracles. Those prophets spoke to the fathers of old, always and without exception, spoke with ultimate reference to the times of the restoration of all things. That's Acts 3.21. That which they spoke of predictively in various ways and at various times is completed in a son in whom God speaks presently and has spoken in the Christ event. The universal restoration is said to occur in times, chronois, Times, plural. The first of those times is the moment of the cross, which we recall and to which we bear witness, for example, in the communion service. The second of those times is the moment of the parousia, when Jesus returns from heaven to the world as its deliverer, a moment in which we await. The moment of the cross is that which we recall and bear witness to. The moment of the parousia is that for which we await with great hope and intense anticipation, even with all of creation. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five to 26. In fact, spiritual health may be measured by the fact that you hold this hope above all other hopes in this world. So in the moment of the cross, that restoration was effectively, divinely enacted through the meritorious and praiseworthy obedience of Jesus Christ. Cross-pollination with Sunday's series, first two of which are out there on the tape table. In the moment of the parousia, of Jesus from heaven to be seen by every eye, Revelation 1-7, that which effectively occurred in Christ's death, followed by his burial, resurrection, elevation, and glorification, will be effectively and universally manifested in his universal appearance. The Holy Spirit then, whom the Father and the Son breathe in an eternal divine procession called spiration. 
a word you might not find in your dictionaries because it's you might find it in a theological dictionary if it's a good one. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father and the Son breathe in an eternal divine procession called spiration, also sighs. Is a good translation. In all the creation and in us, in the earnest expectation of the universal liberation of creation from its slavery to corruption. Romans 8, 22 to 26. Imagine. The spirit for whom this hope is certain, nevertheless, sighs in us, making that hope more and more certain in us. He sighs, breathes in all of creation. If you were really perceptive spiritually and had a hearing ear and a seeing eye, you may detect the breathing of the Holy Spirit in all of creation, the sighing of the creation, the groaning. Of all creation. Poets and prophets get it. So do the poetic among you, I'm sure. And even now where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty already. He sighs in all creation waiting for the creation's liberation. But even now where he is in us, there is already liberation. What? Not complete. But there is freedom from the controlling and enslaving tyrannies of this waning evil age. Thankfully, the evil age is on the wane, whereas the messianic age is waxing. And so, liberty we have already. That has to become manifest as the glorious freedom of God's children in the future in Romans 8.21. When we are all changed in a moment according to a mystery. This is a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the time it takes for light to flicker in the eye. When at the shout of Christ, we are transformed and receive our bodies of glory. In a moment, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52, compared with John 5, 25, the time is coming and it now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. And everybody hears. Because we're either dead in graves or dead in sins. And in Christ, all will be made alive. There's only one thing left to wait for. That's his shout. I hope for that and wait for that more than anything else I await for in this life. And there are things, of course, we hope for in this life. There are unresolved issues that we say, how long, O Lord? There are many things in this life, but don't let any of those hopes supersede and depose the hope of our eternal life in resurrection bodies with the shout of Messiah. So I'm asking, am I ahead of my skis again? I'm asking as a Vermonter who never skied. 
but we can use metaphors. Are we ahead of our skis again? Well, if we are, and I deliberately went out ahead of where I should be going with you tonight. If we are, it's all right, because all real truth, that's a new word I just invented, real-truth, real truth, all real truth is related, and it's all embodied in Jesus, who was begotten in a woman by Ruach HaKodesh, not to become less divine, no matter who says so, Monsignor, bishop, priest, pastor, evangelist, or pope, no matter who says so, when he was begotten in a woman, it was not become, to become less divine or no longer God, but to join a human nature to his divine person so that he would be fully human and fully divine, not half and half. And so that he would be obedient to the father whom he called Abba as a divine person acting humanly. I like what David Bentley Hart wrote, and I read it today. Quoting John 12.32, he says, God makes the soul free by dragging us to himself. And that's extremely true. That's true. The, the volition of man, the volition of the man and the woman is not free until we've been dragged to Christ apart, apart from our volition. And then we're free. If I'm lifted up, I will. It doesn't say draw like it's gentle. Drag like it's a net. And the fish in the net. He doesn't choose. Oh, I'm not going. Yes, you are. And 153 fishes caught in John 21 are very symbolic of a universal. Let's call it the liveliest catch. That obedience to the Father was the except, so we could say, is human free will involved in our salvation, and I would say emphatically, yes, it is, the human free will of one single inclusive representative man, the man Christ Jesus, who said, nevertheless, not what I will, cross-pollination with Sunday, but you, Father. The obedience to the Father was the acceptance of his passion and his death to fulfill the mystery of God's will, which is to reconcile all things and all beings in the heavens and on earth in him. <laughs> God's will isn't to save a few and let the rest be damned. The mystery of his will. Well, we'll read about it in Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. All of this is leading up to an exegesis of that passage. I'm deliberately getting ahead of my skis then here to give hints of things to come, which is what the Holy Spirit teaches us in his role as the spirit of truth. John 16, 13. What did Jesus say? He shall come and teach and lead you into all truth, the Ruach HaKodesh, the spirit of truth, and 
tell you of things to come. That's all I'm doing now with me ahead of the skis. I'm deliberately inserting the end into the beginning, the beginning being the eternal generation of the Son from the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit, question mark. The eternal generation of the Son from the Father and the Spirit, question mark. And the eternal spiration of the Spirit from the Father and the Son. In the spiration of the Spirit, there is the active spiration enacted by the Father and the Son, and the passive spiration by the passion or the passive action of the Spirit. There is a passion of the Spirit in being breathed by the Father. So, what am I doing? See, I've echoed your sentiments. What is he doing? What am I doing? I'm innovating within a systematics which involves five notions in God. If you want to have basic theology, here it is. There are five notions in God. One, that in God there are four divine relations. Paternity, filiation, active, and passive spiration. We'll unfold these as we go but in a different kind of application that ends up living the theology that we're doing. The second notion, in God there are three distinct subjects or subsisters called persons, but not just persons, persons in relation. Three, the third notion is that there are two divine processions in God. They are eternal and internal processions, the procession of the Son and the procession of the Spirit. Four, there are two divine missions, that of the Son and the Spirit. And five, that there is one God. Kind of went five, four, three, two, one, or four, three, two, one, zero here. There is one God, and he is one uncreated and unique being who is, in fact, the sum of all being. The divine missions have what Bernard Lonergan and Robert Duran call an appropriate external term. That appropriate external term we might call the divine objective. It's the purpose of the divine missions aimed at the universal new creation which God creates in the beginning. The beginning, RK, being Christ. That term or that goal is appropriate because it's condign with or adequate to God's essence which is the very quiddity of goodness. God's essence is the very essence or quiddity, quids it, quiddity of goodness and grace. In other words, it's appropriate as the purpose and goal of God who is irreducibly the very act of his divine essence, which is love. You can't know this God and preach as an infernalist or someone who teaches an eternal hell for immortal souls. You can't do it. It's impossible. It's actually a break. It's a psychotic break is the only thing that you could 
attribute that to a psychotic break between knowing the essence of God and thinking such a thing. It's a psych and thankfully it's not a psychotic break in most people. It's just ignorance. It's an ignorance that I had and that I cherished for too long. So I know what I'm talking about experientially. What are we doing? We're doing theology. But we'll also consider that God intends to lift us up into the omnipotent flow of his love and to make us lovers with his own love in a graced imitation of God, which in effect is a graced imitation of the Father or becoming perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus said, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And he meant perfect in love in Mark. Make, make that Matthew five forty three to 48. This is a graced imitation. That's an impossible possibility. Quote a term used often by Karl Barth. But this impossible, impossible possibility is rendered not only possible, but actual by Ruach HaChodesh, the Holy Spirit who was given to us and who pours out in a constant torrent the love of God in our hearts. Romans 5, 5, 5 compared to John 7, 38 and 39. The Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Grace in a strongly hortatory passage in Hebrews ten twenty nine, And this is an appropriate title for him because it's only by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ experienced as the sanctifying communion with the Holy Spirit, that we become imitators of the love of God the Father as demonstrated in the crucified Christ and as poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is living theology. I'm giving you tonight the equivalence of a semester of theology in this one message because it's, Dense. It has to be what is, well, it's kind of a overused already dead metaphor. It has to be unpacked or it has to be fanned out. I like that a little better, but it's still a dead metaphor. Now, I'm going to do one more thing tonight. In the second phase of this DL, DLT increment, seven minutes long or eight, I want to consider the object of conversion. See, I'm oscillating between the God of theology, and the doer of theology, which is you and me. Let's consider then the object of conversion, the subject who is the proper doer of theology, who's headed toward a living of theology. A graced imitation of God requires conversions in the human subject. Paul himself wrote the following he said this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I'm the worst of them but I Paul received mercy because of this so that in me the worst of them Christ Jesus might demonstrate the utmost patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. That is for the experience of life of the life of the coming age in the present time. 
1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16 with additional comments. In Paul, then, we have an exemplar of the mercy that created conversions. What does mercy do? It creates conversions. In Paul, we have an exemplar of the mercy that created conversions in a man who made it his life's aim to ruin the community of God that was coming together in Christ. For you see, there was a time when Paul, Saul of Tarsus, knew Christ only after the flesh. And he perceived all of Christ's followers as heretics and blasphemers. But mercy had the effect of an intellectual conversion by which Paul began to think with an entirely different paradigm and a moral conversion in which Paul rejected his religious zeal as evil. And then a spiritual conversion in which a religious motivation in self-righteousness was overthrown by the love of Christ, which began to effectively master him. I'm going to show you this in a passage that I've translated at the end of this, so just stay with me. In this series of conversions, Paul realized that Jesus is the Christ of his own expectation, that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ of Paul's expectation, as seriously misplaced as that expectation was. Just as our expectations of his second coming are probably misplaced. Paul realized that Jesus the Christ died not just for the sins of Israel, but for all of humanity diachronically, that is, throughout all of human history. Furthermore, it dawned on Paul's consciousness like the morning sun that dispels the night, that when Christ died for all, all died. It was in the wake of this stunning apocalyptic realization that the love of Christ first for God the Father and then for all of mankind began to control Paul. You see, upon reflection, remember we studied that? Reflection. Upon reflection and after amassing of much scriptural evidence which may have come to him in a single striking flash, followed by careful contemplation, Paul made the virtually unconditioned judgment that Christ's death meant universal reconciliation and the salvation of all of humankind. That was his virtually unconditioned judgment as an apostle. That's why years, years ago I said, hey, we better call Paul. Because there's a lot of stuff being said about what he said and what he meant and what he really meant. There are actually books called What Paul Meant and a book that followed that saying what he really meant. So we better call Paul and see what he said. Then he didn't stop. After deliberation, whether it was brief or protracted or throughout his whole life, the love of Christ, which moved him to give himself for all, including Paul, began to move Paul to be self-giving. It was a love for God and a love for all of humankind 
whom the triune God loves with a passionate philanthropy that climaxed in the giving of his son and the son's willing giving of himself and offering of himself to God for us through the eternal spirit. So the story of Paul's many layered conversion is told in his own words in a remarkable passage, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. You can turn there if you want, but I'm going to present it here with my own expanded translation. Incidentally, for the one or two of you, at least, who are waiting for the Romans translation, I'm still working on it with fear and trembling. We'll have a full translation of Romans. I'm presenting there 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. Paul says we, and we can translate it we if we want, because it's an associative plural, but also he can, he's saying I or me. He's giving his own personal testimony, but he's deliberately associating with others. So I'm also adding some interpretive inserts. So this will be also in print. For the love of Christ controls us, means me here. Paul's using an associative plural, an editorial we, like the queen who says, we are not amused. Off with his head. Who's we? Just me. So here is Paul's spiritual conversion. He's speaking of it here. The love of Christ controls me. Having come to this virtually unconditioned judgment, the word is chrisen here, it means judgment. That if one died on behalf of and as representative of all, then all died. And that those who live, this is living theology, as a result of being raised with him, that is, should no longer live for themselves. This is Paul's moral conversion. Living for himself, he ruined the church. Living to the resurrected Christ, he sought to build it up. Then he goes on to say, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Verse 16, for this reason, from now on, I know no one according to the flesh. Nobody. That is, according to who they are by first birth, as it were. And even though I once knew Christ according to the flesh, that is, by my own unconverted intellect, I no longer perceive him that way at all. You know what he's saying here? Do you know what he's saying in relating every person and Christ? Do you know what he's saying? He's saying that by my own unconverted intellect, I saw him one way. But now I don't see the Christ as an individual man only, but as a single representative man who comprises all human beings diachronically in his incarnation, death, burial, resurrection, elevation, and glorification. For if any person is in Christ, and what he's saying here is, and everyone is, if any person is in Christ, and they all are. That's how I see him now. And how many of us see Jesus? Well, we learn about Jesus, and we teach our children about Jesus. He's an individual person. He may be God and man, or he may be just a very good man, but we see him as an individual person. We're knowing him after the flesh. Paul began to know him as a single inclusive representative as Adam was, and he comprises all of humanity. So when Paul goes out to do his commerce and conversation in the city streets, 
He has a psychic conversion where even in seeing a person with his own eyes and hearing with his own ears, he is seeing and hearing someone who is in Christ and a new creation. This is what God's doing in your heart. So he says, for if any person is in Christ and every person is, then he or she is part of the new creation of all things. Then he says, all the old things have passed away. And look, they've become new. It's always been, it's, it's a terrible thing sometimes to go to someone and say, this person we love has passed away. Well, here's something that covers everything. Everything has passed away. <laughs> the whole old has passed away. All things. Look, he says, they've become new. No longer are all humans in the first sir, single inclusive representative Adam, to die. They are all in the second and the last single inclusive representative Christ. Now, everything he goes on to say in verse 18 is from God who reconciled us to himself and gave to us, meaning gave to me, and we can also say gave to us or to me, the ministry of reconciliation. That's simply the commission to proclaim Jesus as our peace. That is, that God was in Christ, the word... The speaker, God, is in the word. I never knew that connection was going to come at the end of this message, but there it is. Oops. I didn't plan it. There it is. Oh, I should do a rap song. Oops, there it is. No, never mind. God was in Christ. God, the Father, was in the word that he eternally spoke as the word was in him. Reconciling the world, that means all of humanity diachronically, that is, over all the course of time and history. Not logging their transgressions against them, which is all you hear all day long on the news and in conversations. People log in the transgressions of others to make themselves look good. Oh, they need all kinds of conversions. We do. God didn't log. Thank God he didn't put in a log book my transgressions. I'm so grateful it makes me look toward others with mercy. And he placed in us, me, Paul says, the message of reconciliation. So as ambassadors representing Christ, we beg you, world, be reconciled to God, which means recognize that you have been reconciled to God. Reconcile yourself to the reality that you have been reconciled to God. This should transform what we call evangelism. Missions. Closing, for God made him 
the one who knew no sin, to be made sin itself so that we, that's all of humanity, diachronically, would become the righteousness of God, which is the result of God's saving action in him. So all of this brought about a fundamental psychic conversion. And I don't know if I identify it or describe it the same way as Robert Duran, but to me, a psychic conversion is that by which Paul, even as he saw in the original sensate experience of seeing somebody, that we wake up, we get out, we see a neighbor, we hear someone who we buy our coffee from. A barista is what they call him now. It used to be, hey, you, give me a coffee. Now it's barista. Can I have a lemon, pumpkin, spice, latte with something else in it and some sprinkles and some nutmeg? And I'll give you, here's my $11. But who we speak to and they speak to us, whom we see, who we hear. We have a psychic conversion. In our everyday commerce and conversation, we see everyone we see and hear everyone we hear as someone in Christ Jesus and a new creation. So Paul didn't only do theology, he lived theology controlled by the love of Christ. And this is where we're headed. And this is where in some measure, some of you, if not all of you, have already in some measure already attained. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. And we pray that these words would spur us on and drag us to yourself. Drag us to your son where we are truly free. Drag us to your spirit where there is liberty. May we go forth from this place because of the word, enjoying a wordless liberty. For we ask it in Christ's name.